Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The New Statesman. I'm Ido Volk. Europe correspondent at the New Statesman, and you're listening to World Review, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to Fatima Shams, an assistant professor of modern Persian literature at the University of Pennsylvania, about the widespread protests in Iran and the future of the Islamic Republic. Fatima, thanks very much for coming on today. Hi, thank you for having me. So obviously these protests have garnered a lot of media attention in the past month and a half or so. They certainly seem to be some of the most widespread in recent Iranian history. Can you tell us a little bit about what sparked these protests and what has caused them to snowball to such a degree across what seems like the entire country? So the widespread protests and public outrage across Iran, which erupted in response to the tragic death of the Iranian Kurdish woman, uh, Maksa Jina Amini, in police custody just days before her 23rd birthday on September 16th, approaching the sixth week. With Amini's death, socioeconomic grievances of the past four decades, along with the systemic and systematic discrimination and violence against ethnic and religious minorities, queer bodies and women, have all come to a head. And within the past five weeks, tens of thousands of women, men, and school children have taken to the streets, and not just in Iran, but also across the world. We witnessed about two and a half weeks ago, we witnessed the largest international march against the Islamic Republic. And inside Iran, In a historic act, Iranian women and girls have been throwing off their headscarves and tossing them onto the pyres and cheering the crowds and screaming death to the dictator. Yeah, so that's what we have been witnessing. And the trigger, although the trigger was the death of Maxojino Amini, as I mentioned, a lot of other underlying concerns and grievances over the past four decades have contributed 
to these protests becoming so widespread. So women's rights is clearly perhaps the driving factor behind these protests, although, uh, as you say, there are also others. Can you talk a little bit about how unusual it is, how usual or otherwise it is for protests in Iran to really be led by women and to focus around social issues, particularly the rights of women and obviously at this issue of the headscarf, which seems to be the predominant issue in, in these protests. It's interesting you're asking that because a lot of people around the world probably don't know that the largest march only three weeks after the arrival of Irugullah Khomeini uh, back in 1979 was actually coordinated by Iranian women and it was an anti-veil march that was held in Tehran in front of the public TV station in the capital and on March 8th, 1979, over 15,000 women took to the streets to protest against the, the compulsion of hijab back in the day. But unfortunately, those protests were very quickly suppressed for two reasons. One, because of the lack of international attention, partly due to the lack of the existence of social media and internet and technology that we have access today, but also partly because they there, there was a lack of support from different political organizations, including the Democrats and liberal-minded revolutionaries who thought that women's demands, particularly the compulsion of hijab, in fact, is not a priority. So when we're talking about um, women, women's bodies and bodily autonomy being at the core of the protests, historically, it has been. It's just after what happened following those protests, unfortunately, in other unrests, women's demands was, was only part of and after effect or uh, it always followed the protests, for example, back in 2009. So uh, this time it is unique in the sense that over the past 43 years, none of the unrests and uprisings that we have been witnessing in Iran really revolved around the rights of women. This is the first time after March 8th, 1979, that we witnessed the repetition of the same pattern in the protests. This time it has become much more widespread in the sense that a lot of other factors, as I mentioned, have also contributed. It's not just the, the compulsory hijab anymore. The petrochemical workers have gone and have joined the general strike. School girls have joined the, the protests. Lawyers, teachers, many different sectors of the society are taking part in these protests. So what we see is that hijab has become only a symbol of a much wider wider and widespread protest that really focuses on so many different forms of discrimination and marginalization of different groups of the society. I'd like to get on to the kind of broader political context, but just before I do, I, could you just talk about the position of women in Iran and under the Islamic Republic? What is their, how well are the rights of women respected in Iran? What's the kind of position of women, the kind of the broader structural issues that might be pushing women to protest above and beyond just the issue of the headscarf? 
And many are asking why the death of a young Kurdish Iranian woman has suddenly become a tipping point. And this takes us into many different directions. One thing that I think is really important to keep in mind is that as, as far as the women's right in the post-revolutionary period is concerned, we are talking about a society where misogyny has unfortunately been purposefully institutionalized by the state and internalized and normalized by the state's institutions. What we witness today is one of the most radical feminist revolutions across the globe, which is fascinating. It's really inspiring for a lot of feminists around the world who are very closely following and watching what's happening in Iran. We shouldn't also forget that Iran's women's movement draws on a really long history of resistance and defiance since mid-19th century. However, this time, we see the youngest generation of Iranian women who have been born after the 2000s have taken the lead in these protests. And we see that this century of resistance against the patriarchy have finally reached a threshold. And as the schoolgirls are making history today in Iran by taking the streets and coming face to face with the state patriarch and demanding full autonomy over their bodies and lives. This is the generation that is not, is not willing to internalize the misogyny and is not willing to turn its back on a systematic discrimination against women. And that's precisely the reason that, to go back to your question, I think what we see, for example, the hijab patrols is a very good example of this institutionalized misogyny that didn't exist during the 1980s. During the 1980s, which is one of the most oppressive decades after the revolution, we had grassroots radical forces who attributed themselves to the government going around scoring women's faces for not wearing proper hijab. And then later on, after the Iran-Iraq war, and even during the reformist period it, between 1996 to 2004 5 we see that this control of the woman's body still is pursued by even the reformist politicians. A bill passes towards the end of his presidency and later on goes into effect during the presidency of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the radical hardline president that came to power after 2005. And so what I'm trying to say here is that different political parties that have come to power after the revolution, regardless of their political inclination, regardless of being a reformist or a radical hardline, all of them agreed on one point, and that was to control the woman's body and to view it as a battleground, ideological battleground of the government. Some of the reformists claim that they loosen the control over the hijab when Khatami was the president, but a lot of them ignore the fact that they never asked for compulsory hijab to be abolished. They never put that, prioritized it, and they, and they never mentioned that the hijab patrols that we are seeing today in the streets, in fact, was a bill that went into effect towards the end of the presidency of Mohammed Khatami. I think by bringing all of these points together and looking more broadly over the past four decades, we come to realization that unfortunately, women's bodily autonomy has been constantly and systematically ignored and by different political parties. And what we see today is a result of this coalition of many different political groups. And perhaps that's why the current movement 
is not calling upon any of these previous political leaders. They have given up on reform. They have given up on the voices that one day, you know, pretended to be the representative of the Iranian population and then later on didn't exactly stick to their promises. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including... The historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Obviously, we've heard a lot of anti-regime slogans during these protests, calling basically for the end of the Islamic Republic. I wondered if you could talk a bit about 
the possibility for the Islamic Republic kind of reforming itself. Is it possible to imagine an Islamic Republic without the compulsory hijab for women, for example? Or is this such a kind of core issue to the way the regime sees itself and identifies itself that it can't possibly backtrack on, on, on this issue? So this goes back really to 1980s. In the aftermath of the Islamic Revolution and the establishment of the Islamic Republic, the government was very keen on creating revolutionary citizens and characterizing these citizens to the world, showing them to the world as the followers and avid believers of the Islamic ideology of the regime. And naturally, one of the very first things that they they decided to maneuver on was women's dress code. And let's also not forget that we are talking about a much, much deeper problem here. We are talking about a deeply rooted patriarchy in the culture. Back in 1930s, when Reza Shah introduced his top-down modernization campaign in Iran, compulsory unveiling was one of his policies. So women who were veiling in the streets were being attacked. And after the revolution, we have the reverse campaign. We have the opposite, compulsory reveiling campaign. I guess what I'm trying to say here is that we shouldn't also forget that sense of the state patriarch constantly trying to control and define his policies by controlling the woman's body is not something new. It doesn't only limit itself to the Islamic Republic. But the difference between the compulsory unveiling and revealing was that after a while, Reza Shah realized that this is not going to work. And so he abandoned the idea altogether. And women had the freedom to either wear or not wear hijab. But what we have witnessed over the past 43 years is that the Islamic Republic is not willing to compromise or abandon or abolish the compulsory hijab. And in my view, one of the reasons is because they have defined and they tied the idea of women's body coverage to their core of their ideology of the regime to an extent that if they let this one go, they know they will face the consequences of what will be the beginning of secularization of the public sphere in Iran, what we already have in Iran, but people are exercising their their favorite or preferred lifestyle only behind the closed doors of their private spaces. And the Islamic Republic is aware of that, but they just don't want to let that come out of the households because they know that will change the face of the social order and the society. And I don't think that the Islamic Republic is actually ready for that. Islamic Republic is not willing to transform itself into a secular republic or to a real republic, to a republic that gives the people the right uh, to choose what they want to wear and how they want to live their lives. If that happens, and I'm talking from their point of view, they're thinking that if they let this one go, meaning the compulsory hijab, then they have to compromise on many other values, as they call it, such as the normalization of the relationship between the opposite sexes in the society, or in general, to just loosen up on, on pressure on the social sphere and let the people live the kind of life that they want. It comes with a certain amount of freedom that will allow people to to be different in terms of their 
presence and their contribution to their society. We will have much more visibility for women. Women are already extremely successful, much, much more successful than their male counterparts in Iran. Over 60% of university students are women. They're highly educated, very accomplished. And I don't think that the Islamic Republic wants, wants them to be much more visible than they already are. And that's perhaps one of the reasons that why they are so keen on keeping this piece of fabric, as many would imagine, it's just a piece of fabric, but it really goes much deeper than just a piece of closing on the head. It's a way of life. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of being. It's being more visible and more active and more autonomous in general. And I think Islamic Republic is very much scared of that. So the Islamic Republic really sees this as a kind of article of faith. And just finally, if these protests continue and continue growing and the unrest spreads, is there a chance that this could lead to the end of the Islamic Republic? The reports we have from Iran seem to suggest that there's unprecedented repression and really harsh repression of protesters. So the regime clearly sees this as a very serious threat to its rule. How likely is this to result in, in the end of the Islamic Republic? This is not going to happen overnight. Look, it took 13 months for the Islamic Revolution or the 1979 Revolution, whatever we call that, to succeed. A, a 13 months since the beginning of the revolutionary movement. We are only a, a month and a half into these events and people are joining the general strike. There are mass arrests, brutal, lethal crackdown on, on the protests. People can't even gather in a group of five or three in the streets. They will be scattered or shot. There was a huge fire in the prison just a few days ago. We don't even know how many people were killed. The government says eight. The eyewitnesses are saying way more than eight. So we shouldn't put all of this together. We also must be patient and just con constantly give voice to the protesters and don't think that just because today or yesterday there wasn't any protest, so everything is gone back to normal and people are back to their daily lives. Nothing is normal on the ground at the moment. And there is a volcano that is active and it can erupt every moment. I also would like to say that at this point, it's really important for, the, for these protests to succeed. It's really important how the international community is going to react. The point is that back in 2009, the government did not expect uh, and wasn't ready to face that huge crowd that took to the streets. Since 2009 and after what happened, because of the way that they completely were shocked by and taken back by the number of the people that came to the streets and they saw this revolutionary potential in, the, in that moment, they completely armed themselves and equipped themselves organize themselves in the form of plainclothes forces, in the form of armed forces, in order to be ready for moments like this. So what we have today is, an, uh, is a horrifically armed and equipped, not just army, but also like paramilitary militia that are ready to shoot. And they have no red line, they have no limitation, they will shoot. They shoot a 16-year-old, they shoot a 7-year-old, and they shoot a 60-year-old. 
we are talking about a situation that is extremely lethal. So to expect people to come to the streets in a situation like that, I think is a little unfair to the people who are on the ground. So there are ways of forms of civil disobedience that people are very creatively coming up with every day. From schoolgirls not walking out of the classroom to the petrochemical workers joining the strike, to people in the prison shouting slogans, to people in the households in different neighborhoods going at 9 p.m. and shouting slogans of the movement like Woman Life Freedom every night. So these are more important. And this means that this movement is very much alive. And eventually, yes, it could topple the regime, I think, but it might take a year. It might take longer than we, we wish and we expect. Fatima Shams, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend and leave us a nice review. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. I'm Ido Rock. Thanks for listening and until next time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.